Hello, and welcome to the Interintellect Hostcast. My name is Linus Liu. The Interintellect hosts some of the most interesting conversations on the internet. We have dozens of intimate salons and events every week where curious thinkers from all over the world gather to talk about a wide range of topics, from philosophy to technology to literature. Check out all of our salons and join our growing community at interintellect.com. In this episode, I talk with Katrina de la Cruz about education. Katrina is currently the assistant head of school at the Academy of Thought and Industry, a virtual Montessori-inspired middle and high school. We talk about how to foster curiosity, the role of parents and guardians in children's education, and systematic ways to improve the education system. And without further ado, my conversation with Katrina de la Cruz. Katrina, so glad to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Great. So I think where we can start is exploring education and curiosity. Just kind of what your perspective is on curiosity as a trait and curiosity as something that can be fostered in both children and adults. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just as some background to myself, I've been working in the field of education for about uh, six years in different capacities, not necessarily directly in the classroom, but always been in this position of supporting schools or supporting educators. I worked in ed tech for a bit. I did nonprofit events for educators, uh, like teacher training. And now I I run a school, a Montessori online uh, middle school and high school. And um, I kind of do want to share a little bit about like the motivations that brought me to that because it's it's a really core part of just who I feel I am and, and what I what I'm doing with my life. I think that just in my own story of being like a curious human being, I uh, grew up in an environment that really really encouraged learning. That really gave me, and it wasn't in this explicit way where like, you know, my mom was telling me like you have to be a curious person. I think I just part of it was um, just feeling safe in, in exploring as a human being and and not feeling. Just, just attaching this sense of joy to learning at a very early age, whether that was in seeing other people learn and be fulfilled through that, or just even like decisions my family made to take me to the library and show me that I had access to the world as a young person with questions. And there was a self-esteem that was developed in me in that whole process of being someone who was allowed to ask questions, who could find answers and who could just continue this fulfilling process of of asking questions and learning and exploring, um, whatever it might've been. When I, I've reflected on this question of like, what's made me a curious person. And there's all these different factors that ultimately led back to just this ongoing fulfillment internally about the experience of learning. And, um, I carry that into high school. And, you know, when I also hosted salons on the topic of, um, education systems. And it's really interesting because you, you realize that people have the shared experience of like generally an education system being a a roughly negative experience with positive experiences with individual teachers or individual classes throughout it. And for me growing up, I like came into high school with this, I loved reading. And then I would situate, be situated in classes where it felt more about like the, you have to ingest information and spit it out. And I was so frustrated with that. And then it just turned into this whole lifelong thing of like, how do we create, like, what are this, what are the, what's the environment? What are the systems that that can come into place that are better than this? What are places where that curiosity that I held as a young person, as a young child could continue and not feel like I had these competing interests of getting good grades versus like enjoying a book. 
Yeah. So that's kind of, I don't know if I answered the question there, but it was sort of just like this journey into the same question throughout my life. And um, there are different things that I've learned, the different positions that I've been in, in education that have given me, given me a glimpse into like, what does contribute to humanity successfully achieving a the best context for reaching human potential or fostering curiosity or things like that. I'm still learning, but that's kind of a starting point to, to who I am and what I do and um, what I think about curiosity. Yeah, that's great. And I, I love that you touched on how you've approached education and curiosity in so many different ways and, and just how you're living out what you're interested in and passionate about. And so to, to get a little bit more concrete, I'd love to ask just in terms of all of the different avenues in which you've approached education, whether it's directly teaching or through policy or through technology, what do you feel are some of the most underrated and overrated ways of improving education on the margins? Yeah, um, I smiled at this question because it's such an interesting question. And the first thing that I want to answer is the overrated part, actually, because I worked in ed tech and I, I was a research analyst in ed tech. So it was my job to kind of understand the field of education and, and what sort of what were the trends essentially in education? You know, what are school districts needing and what are what is the private sector providing to school districts? Um, I worked largely in this, this field of student data, right? It's like this question of how are we measuring academic learning through assessment? And I learned so much about different types of assessment. And I think what's really fascinating is I, as a, as a student, testing has a lot of anxiety attributed to it. What does this mean for who I am? And what is, what the heck is an A versus a B plus? And you put all this effort into that. It's become overrated because sometimes when you look at the purpose of assessment outside of context of learning, like there's all these things, right? Like high stakes testing and how it relates back to school funding and all of the, like there, there's truth to that in the sense that part of the experience of education is this mandatory, like state experience of like, how, how do you educate thousands of individuals systematically? Like there's an operational question there, first and foremost, and how, how do you determine funding for all of the things? But I think it's, it's so there's validity in like the approach because of what we're trying to do in society. But it's like, I think we lose so much of the purpose and the point of learning in that it's just, it serves its own purposes, but it's not done well. Like at the end of the day, we have to realize like, we're not just trying to like increase test scores. I feel like that loses the point entirely. But assessment does have its place. Like it's important in the process of learning. For example, there's things called uh, formative assessments, which is more like in the moment, you know, you're just guiding the direction of like what's happening in the classroom and understanding what a student is actually taking away from something or not. But there's also these like other form forms of assessment, which are like super high stakes. We don't understand the purpose of them in society. We just kind of like hold them over ourselves and our children in this way that we never really explain the importance of it to them. So there's so much that goes into testing, but I just think it's the overrated part is thinking that's the be all end all. You know, I don't think anyone really believes that testing is learning. Like, <laughs> I mean, it is a pervasive thing. Like I lived in a, in a family that, you know, wanted me to get good grades and get good test scores so that I could go to college because that meant something about the quality of my life. The, the desire to succeed in society is, is important. But again, like the path to it must be questioned and challenged. Um, and we really have to get good at it. I think, or else we waste so much time in having these unnecessary arguments or things like that. That's why I'm so interested in like Montessori um, and these other sort of proven paths that we can take. Um, as far as underrated, I would say the role of strong relationships in learning. 
I don't think that learning is this experience where you have someone who like is constantly like saying you like good job, you know, the rela- the relationship in learning is important because it's a path for an individual to build that self-esteem because it's, someone is guiding the path to building self-esteem and agency as opposed to like handing it to another student. So there's so much there too to unpack, but underrated is the the value and the importance of like just having like a teacher in the classroom who loves what they're learning and embodies that. And I think it's like, it's underrated because we expect to have these like massive classrooms, um, like university campuses, for example, like where there's these huge, uh, these huge lecture spaces. And, and yes, that is one form of learning, but I don't know. I just think a lot about the relationships in the classroom and how that impacts a student's process of falling in love with learning, right? That's different from transferring knowledge, which has its own place, but falling in love with learning and internalizing that. I really think that the relationships that we build in school environments are really important. Yeah, I I totally agree that relationships are, from a systems perspective, totally undervalued. But I I feel like if you ask anyone about where they found their love of learning or love of a certain subject, they talk about a specific person and and the relationship that they had with them. Mm -hmm. So I think on a personal level, very few people would dispute that relationships are an incredibly crucial part of fostering curiosity and making educational outcomes successful. But in terms of why there is such a systemic failure to really cultivate relationships, of course, you can't really mandate that a teacher build a strong relationship with a student. It's a very difficult thing, I would think, to, to measure and build a, like a policy around. But where would you say are kind of the the main points of failure? Is it that the the teachers aren't motivated or they're they're not incentivized in the right way? Are the parents more concerned about getting test scores rather than actually fostering a true sense of curiosity and love of learning in their own kids? Is it on the administrative or government funding side? Where do you kind of see the levers in, in terms of addressing why I think is really correct about kind of the lack of relationship building in education system? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's a component of all of those things, right? It's it's like in, in a child's experience, it's not just the relationship in the classroom, like a, a parent's own values about learning are, brought, are absolutely central to their relationship with learning and what happens in the classroom and the way that they respond to what happens in the classroom. Um, the experience of, you know, you take a really motivated, a, a, a teacher who's just really good at teaching because it's an art to teach, you know, and teachers being in systems where they feel supported and it's very overwhelming, you know, it can be a very, very overwhelming experience to be a teacher because there, there's a lot of emotion involved with it in the sense of like, it's a very caring, time consuming type of experience where you're in a classroom and, and building relationship with students, you know, you have to have your own space to like recharge from, from those types of experiences. I mean, honestly, I don't know if I have the right answer or the one answer, but I just, I think a lot about the ways in which we build relationships and the ways in which we as a society show that we value that or not, you know? And what's really interesting too is like, I guess I can only really speak for the school that I run. I mean, I think we have some really incredible teachers, like our role as as an administration and school leader is selecting those people, like the guides that we have. They're all so committed and passionate to building this experience for a student in the classroom from caring for them, but also challenging them and pushing them and and giving them paths to um, build themselves. And I think my role as a a school administrator is protecting that, you know, like 
giving our, our teachers like the space in which they can um, really follow their own intuition around each of their students individually, right? And that requires things like small class sizes. You know, we have classrooms where there's three guides with roughly 30 students. And so it's this very low student to teacher ratio. Um, so I, I, I haven't worked in the public education system, so I can't really speak to that very much, but I, I really can speak to what I'm seeing in my own work, um, in my own school, and also just what I've done in like this nonprofit. There's a nonprofit I used to work for called the Freedom Writers in which building community across um, individuals of completely diverse backgrounds was was a big thing. There was a lot of like discussion about you know race in the classroom and, and how that initially racial division like brought tension in the classroom, but then like it was, it was the teacher made it her goal to like bring everyone together and, and focus on community and a sense of safety first. So yeah, protecting that ability to to bring people together and build and foster real relationships. There's so many layers to that, but I think that finding whatever way we can to protect that skill, to value it, to see the importance of like genuine care and love in the classroom as an important thing is is part of the picture. It just does get lost in all of the systems and requirements and all of these things. It, I am still very much exploring this question myself. So I, as I'm like sort of thought dumping in this moment, but I hope I give some semblance of like what I'm experiencing. Yeah, definitely. I think I wanted to go back to your point that you made about how testing and having some sort of quantitative metrics are important in some to some extent, but obviously not a end by itself. Um, and I wanted to follow up on that in terms of how, how, do, how should we actually measure success in education? Mm. So things like building strong relationships and building a community that, of kindness and, and psychological safety for, for children to explore. Yeah. Like, how, how is that something that we can really measure? Or is that like one of those things kind of like the paradox of happiness, where mm. if you try to achieve it or measure it directly, you can't really do it. Whereas at the same time, I think you can really clearly see when things are working and when it's not. But in terms of how to actually structure schools in a scalable way and be able to point towards success versus lack of success, like how do you see that improving? I personally would boil it down to, one, I think it's different at different ages and if different age groups, right? But as someone who's running a middle school and high school and working with adolescents, like I, I would ask myself, are the students that are leaving our school do they walk away with a sense of like self-esteem and agency and independence in which they can maneuver through the, the information in their lives and make decisions for themselves that make sense for themselves? Because that's the interesting thing. Like when you enter into an education system, you're inherently walking into a space of someone else has decided what is important uh, as far as knowledge, right? As follows. And that's not, that's not in itself a bad thing. Like sometimes there are, there are things to learn that we want to hand off and, and pass down that are important that would lend itself to developing more independent human beings. But is a student walking away just like understanding why for themselves, developing that answer within themselves so that they can, you know, just operate in the world in a way that just, just has a lot of agency. And that, that core sense of like self-esteem, I think is really important and, and a really core goal of what I think a, a school should be about. And part of that goes back to like what we feel curious about and how we pursue knowledge. Like part of my experience of, of loving learning, foundational to that is me believing that I can learn. It's enjoyable because it brings me a sense of seeking and finding information and integrating information within myself in the way that... The, my world makes sense to me and feels available to me to to operate within. So 
I think, and that's not, and it's funny because like I worked in ed tech where all of these like dashboards and like measuring academic progress all, you know, have the, their different objectives and points and such, but I don't think you can map that out. You can't measure that on a dashboard in numbers, I think. And I don't know if that's ever should be the goal, but it's this really, really beautiful process. Uh, and it, it takes like paying attention, right, to the individual. It takes, again, it goes back to the relationships. Like a core part of our school is um, evaluation by coaches with their, with their coaches, evaluation of guides, like qualitative, like saying, this is what the student experienced. This is where I could see they could go. It's, and, and to what degree have they mastered this or, or not mastered these skills versus like just slapping a letter grade on something that's very just abstract and linked to a number. Yeah. I think that is really core to, to, I guess, measurement of learning. It, it, yeah, it has its place, but in how it, it manifests and comes up is um, a whole discussion. Yeah, I, I definitely think that you know, perfect measurement probably will will never exist, nor should it. I think that mm-hmm. part of the beauty of humans are kind of their their uniqueness and the very fact that they can't be boiled down to to numbers. I'd love to to hear more about what that looks like in the classroom uh, in terms of building an education system geared towards building individual agency and curiosity and independence. Now, how does that differ from a tr- more traditional classroom in terms of the way that a teacher conceives of his or her own job in terms of class size, curriculum? I think I think a lot of listeners would be really interested in hearing about what that classroom actually looks like. Yeah, um, I think something that's really interesting about, for example, our middle school, the way it's formatted is, um, and it's all online, so we have a Zoom room in which all students come into and it's guided by three teachers. In Montessori, our teachers are called guides. And so it creates an environment in which um, our guides can really work together and learn about each student and and really just be receptive to where a student is at in their learning. You know, um, we really, it, it gives this ability to personalize the space um, and ask a student, do you need more support? Do you need less support? Like what, how are you going to plan out your week? It's just this experience of it's, it's not one size fits all uh, in this way that everyone's doing the same thing at all at once. Uh, we have these things called work cycles built into the schedule, which is like an open space in which after the, the math class or the, the humanities class or the science class, a student will decide for themselves, how are they going to use this time? Is it additional support? Is it small group space? It's the point of it. It's, it's, it's flexible to the needs of the students in that given moment. And we are holding, you know, we're creating, it's not just like open study room where you're all left alone. It's like an active space of flexibility and holding ourselves accountable to specific goals or students asking themselves what they need and then getting support from the guides. So just building in these really interesting ways that allow for that flexibility and teamwork. And also, again, like the low um, student teacher ratio um, really lends itself to not having to do this whole like we're on this chapter and we're not, everyone's moving forward irrespective if someone's like learned it or not. I think that's a, a bit of a dangerous place to be in when you're just going through the motions just to meet the speed of the curriculum. Because then it's like, what is that for? Why do that? And and that's, there's a whole, you know, the, the, the tension of, of meeting certain standards at, on a certain timeline. Um, it's all hard, you know, it's all difficult, but I think it takes like a really great team that works together and, and really listens to the individual student and also lots of conversations with parents too. Like parents are absolutely part of the equation. It's really interesting. I grew up in, and my mom was not, my parents were not very involved with my schoolwork growing up. But what I'm finding is we just, when families join our school, it's very much a welcoming of the entire family. We, 
we let parents know like what's happening in in a student's learning how can they support how can they be part how can we all like scaffold what's being taught to the child at a, at a given moment so there's very much also that partnership between guides and parents as well yeah so those are some interesting components that make it different from a public school environment i think virtually too what i've heard as feedback from families too is like being virtual generates this culture of flexibility where if a family wants to travel to another location and take the schoolwork with them, that's possible. If, if a student is, is struggling with certain types of um, medical conditions that they need to be off camera and find the space for themselves to just get comfortable and decide what their learning experience is like so that it matches their needs, that flexibility exists too. So we're also really interestingly like dissecting what it means to be in a, in a learning environment and finding ways to to be flexible, but still meeting the needs of a student in how they learn best, but also still providing structure in that, in that experience. Yeah. Those are some components. That's really interesting. And well, it piqued my interest that you know, your school is, is remote in the past couple of years with the pandemic, remote learning and its implications have been really top of mind for a lot of people. But I think one part of the education system that we haven't really touched on that I think is really impacted by remote versus in-person is the is socialization or mm-hmm. peer socialization as a really integral part of the, the school system and how a lot of the biggest lessons that you know, I've certainly learned in school was outside of the classroom during lunch, talking with friends and just kind of learning how to grow up with, with people around me and whether or not that's something that can be made more intentional both in the public school system, but also in these new newer alternatives, um, schooling systems and and methodologies, and also in a remote environment. You know, how does socialization play a role, and how are you thinking about that? Yeah, I love that question. There seems a, there's a natural concern of oh, if my, if my education is all online, what does that mean for the relationships that I build with people? I just would say it goes back to the quality of our guides as people who are so good at meeting each of our students where they're at. Like it's the most beautiful community. I, I would say communities because we have different cohorts. But what I see consistently across the board is, is irrespective of its virtual or in-person, this inherent ability to care about the child in front of them, to build connection, to build community and meaning. And not just from the guides to the students, but the students to the students. You know, we have like space the chat rooms where students connect with one another. And we had spent a whole beginning of our school year just focusing on community building. So I think there are certainly ways to go about that intentionally, where it's not just this like online experience where you're detached from other human beings. I mean, if you think about the interintellect, this is entirely online. I've not breathed on someone like in person, had this like, you know, handshake experience, but I've still built some of the most powerful connections um, that I've had intellectually and emotionally with with peers across the the globe uh, through this space. So it's very much possible. It just depends on how we intentionally structure these experiences. That's great. And one, one other thing that you brought up about how when a child enters the school, they actually bring their whole family and would love to talk about how parents or guardians fit into the child's education and the, and the school system. I think if you ask a lot of people and myself included in terms of who's been the biggest influence on my education, I'd easily say my parents. Yeah. Um, and of course, there's such a diversity in terms of the households that, that kids come from. What can parents do better in terms of how a school system can affect parent-child educational relationship? 
And, and also just more generally, like, how, how do you think about the, the role of parents and guardians in education and whether or not that's a potentially massive issue in terms of, you know, kids coming from broken homes or, or abusive backgrounds in which, you know, that's a massive disadvantage for them in terms mm -hmm. of psychological safety and, and whatnot. And yeah, that's opening a can of worms here, but we'd love to <laughs> you know, start that conversation. What's fascinating is, yeah, it wasn't something that I thought, like I'm not a parent yet. Um, and the, the role of my parents in my education was like dropping me off to school and making sure I wasn't failing. They weren't, I wouldn't say they were like tiger parents in which they required me to get A's, but there was still, it was just like, just as long as you get the degree, you're okay kind of thing. But I've also seen parents, especially like, like inter-intellect parents are my favorite human beings ever. Like just shout out to Violetta for just sharing the ways in which she's been involved with wanting the most fulfilling educational experience for her, for her children. And, and I love like being able to witness that. I think that's like a great example. It's just involvement in what your child is learning and also involvement in the why of learning and also involvement on the way of embodying what it means to learn. I think those are, are components of it. I mean, there's a side of it that's also like, you know, as a parent, are you checking in if your child is like completing assignments or things like that, but just like a general support by way of being philosophically aligned in a family of what the purpose of learning is. And one of my favorite things is talking to families and they're just like, you know, they really also are on the same page of, of, of bringing them to our school because they want to honor the power of choice. There's students who join our school who want to do like a four-year track college route or, you know, want to make it into Ivy, Ivy League school. They have, they have their own um, sort of objectives. But what I hear by largely from a lot of our families is just wanting a space in which that same philosophy that they hold about learning, about being a joyful, fulfilled, self-directing individual, like they want that for their kids and they, they align with our school and that we want the same thing for their kids. I think that is a component of a parent seeing themselves as part of the whole educational journey is just how the way in which they hold the, the value of learning um, and they seek out experiences for their child that can support that. And yes, you're absolutely right in that there are also families who are just large, largely uninvolved with their child's learning. There was a there someone had said some tweet at some point where it was like schools have become a place where parenting is just given to schools with the responsibility that, like, oh, the school will parent my child. And I don't know what I have, a, what my opinion on of that, of, on that is yet, but I do think it's an interesting way in which I hadn't really fully recognized the role of school in society, that it is also, it can be this place in which parents like offload their responsibility for parenting to some degree, as far as like what it means to learn and give that full responsibility to a school. And I, I'm starting to be more on the opinion of like, you no, know, parents should be really involved with that. It's not just an institution's responsibility to develop that it has to be everyone has to be on the same page as to creating that environment for a child. Yeah, I mean, I personally totally agree with that. Um, but you know, just as one's education, you know, even though it technically ends at you know 12th grade, and then maybe if you go to college, but I mean, education and learning is a lifelong process. And in terms of you know, what you, you know, just brought up in terms of you know, the, the parents, you know, have a responsibility to be involved in the education system. Like what, what responsibility does the, the school system then have, you know, generally speaking to, to educate the parents in the ways that they might be falling short in the ways that they could be doing better um, among a, a lot of different fronts. Like, yeah. I think like for, for myself, like my parents weren't like 
know, checking my homework or, you know, getting down to the weeds and that. But I think a lot of the, the education that I got from my parents growing up was, you know, just in terms of the questions that they were asking me you know, after each day at school, the conversations that we would have at the dinner table, you know, kind of just the, the general environment that's there. But I think in terms of, you know, whether that's, you know, building a strong parent and parent teacher relationship or with the administrators and, and parents or parents to parents, like, like, um, and how does that fit in and how should we prioritize that aspect uh, of, the, of the education system and kind of whether you feel like that's a really important lever to, you know, pay attention to and, and think about. Yeah. I haven't personally tackled the problem or the question of how do we take uninvolved, unengaged parents? How do schools take uninvolved and unengaged parents and take them to the end of being involved and engaged? So I can't speak to that, but I will say that I, I am seeing the importance of creating resources for parents as far as like there's a student community. There's also a parent community in which parents share with one another, you know, there, there's sort of um, a shared philosophy and approach to choosing a Montessori school and an online school that um, creating a community for our parents as well has been really valuable and allowing them to go on this journey together um, just as much as their students or their children are going on this journey together. So yeah, I haven't quite done much to really tangibly approach that, though I am seeing the, the value of that. And in general, it's, it's one of the reasons I love schools is because it's this focal point of community. I mean, we are virtual. And so the meaning of what does local community mean in a virtual environment is, you know, abstract in, in its own way. But I, when I was learning about the history of education um, and just seeing how local schools were, I mean, it was in America, like these, these like small um, one-room schoolhouses were created in response to just a community coming together and saying, we, we collectively want our, our kids to, to learn, to be literate. And how do we bind, bind together resources to make that happen? I love reading into um, Sirkin Robinson's work. And he really focuses this is on the environment of a school as this organic sort of garden. Um, and what are the, the, the things you put in place to, to nurture a proper community? Um, and that involves the entire system of all the people involved, parents, students, administrators, community members outside of that, you know, like what are the core things that that make a thriving community in which everyone feels part of the solution, everyone contributes something to the whole of a healthy environment. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that a lot and, and really feeling like that's core to my work as, as a school administrator is um, trying to find the ingredients to proper community. And then translating that virtually. And <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really amazing. And, and I totally agree that that schools can be such a powerful locus for people to, to get together around in terms of the, the barriers to that in, in a lot of schools where presumably that's not the current reality in terms of the, the school as a strong community. Do you feel like that's mostly just a lack of awareness that most parents and teachers and administrators just aren't conceptualizing the school in those terms? Or do you think it's, a, it's, it's something else in terms of you know, lack of funding or just lack of resources and time? When I worked for the Freedom Riders nonprofit, basically part of my work was to help manage uh, speaking engagements for Aaron Gruel, and we would travel to different school districts, whether 
affluent school districts or poorly resourced school districts. And it's a mix, right? Like all of it kind of has to work together properly. I went to this one school district where, you know, the school school administrators had the best of intentions, but they were just these, these factors that made it really difficult to succeed. You know, lack of resources, an unsafe neighborhood environment, just based off of the the, the, the physical location where they're in and the community that I was part of. Like there was this one story where I went to this district and it was actually built upon land that was radioactive. And so it was just like not a physically safe environment for the students and the teachers involved. And so I don't, I don't know if there's any one core piece of it. I, certainly having the resources to fund like a, a better space and have the environment for that would be is part of it. But it's also in combination with, with of course, well-intentioned school administrators, well-trained educators, all of these things. It's, it all has to come together, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I don't necessarily think just like throwing money, it might attract better talent or something, but I don't know. I think it's it's an interesting mix. I mean, when I worked with Erin Gruel, like her whole story is that she was given um, a classroom of students who were who were all thought to not succeed in school. You know, these were students who were part of gangs, weren't were failing in classes, were just sort of written off. And um, this this was a story where she herself took it upon herself as a teacher to find resources. Like she worked additional jobs to get the resources that she needed. She was really creative in ways to just get her students outside of the classroom and get really creative in, in finding ways for them to find themselves in their learning, like having notebooks um, for students to share their stories. Like she, in that moment, in that very specific moment, saw that her students needed a space of safety and her students needed a, an opportunity to see the world around them differently and to see their role in the world around them differently and to have an outlet in which that could be shared creatively and um, safely. So that's like a, a, an example in which it wasn't like a whole school district necessarily giving her the resources or changing, but it was like one individual teacher who really, really took it upon herself to give her students that she was given the best opportunity they, they could get. And the story in the documentary is absolutely beautiful. So I would recommend anyone exploring that. But I've also heard of, of, of situations in which like really impassioned superintendents, you know, go in and really listen to, you know, become like that starting point of, of transforming a school district or a school because they're going in and, and listening to what, what the needs of the school are and um, changing that on a systemic level. So it really depends. Uh, it's very specific, but yeah exploring all those different sort of case studies of, of what helps a school thrive. But I do think that that sense of safety at the core of it is very important. You know, however that comes to be, whatever the, the community needs for that to, to bring that space for, for students is very, 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 very important. Yeah, that's great. And, and thanks so much for sharing those stories. We'll, we'll make sure to leave some links uh, in the description of the podcast. Since we're running out of time, we'd love to close on a broader question, just zooming out. Mm-hmm. In terms of the audience, assuming that the audience is high schoolers, college students, professionals, older people, for everyone who's interested in becoming more curious in their everyday lives and bring in kind of more learning in, into their everyday lives, what would be one piece of advice that you would give? Hmm, I would say... Explore your relationship with attention, with your own attention, like what you give your attention to. Something that I'm trying to deconstruct for myself is I so I experience so much joy every day just by way of feeling like the world is a fascinating place. 
Someone asked me on Twitter, you know, what is your favorite? I did one of those, like I ate, you know, I got McDonald's today, ask me anything. And then someone actually answered, ask a question and, you know, asked like, what's your favorite thing about yourself? And I was like, I, I thought about it. And I was like, it is this, this innate ability to just feel fascinated by everything. And I think part of that comes from paying attention to the world around me and feeling centered in my world. Um, I gosh, I feel like there's just so much behind. I don't think there's an easy answer to that. It has a lot to do with just the way that a person develops their own self-esteem or the environment that they're in to develop a sense of self-esteem. But to, to feel like the world is accessible to me in whether I want to understand it or know it or change it or be part of it, that is core to what gets me excited about learning. Um, it's not just this like dumping of information in my head, but this like synthesis and, and play that I have about the experience of, of learning. So yeah, but I would, I would bring it back to just, you know, what is your relationship to attention and start from there. I think that's wonderful. So thanks so much, Katrina, for being on the podcast. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. I had so much fun. Thank you so much.